David Osborne is president and general counsel for the Fairness Center, a nonprofit public interest law firm he helped to launch in 2014, providing counsel to public employees whose constitutional rights have been harmed by government unions. David and his colleagues at the Fairness Center are busy lawyers as uh, they help public school teachers and state and local workers seek justice under the law. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I'm in Harrisburg today, and my guest uh, for this podcast is David Osborne. He is the uh, president and general counsel of the Fairness Center, uh, something he helped launch in 2014. David, uh, welcome to Brews and Views. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Well, you've got your coffee cup full, your Brews and Views coffee cup. Of course, uh, you have to earn that. Uh, So the only people you will see with that mug that's in your hands right now are those that have been on uh, Brews and Views. So uh, congratulations. You are now in that elite club. Thanks. Good coffee, too. Good coffee. (laughs) Good. I'm glad glad you enjoy it. So, so David, um, you've listened to shows before. I want to get a brief background on, uh, you know, how this uh, Southern boy, uh, most, you know, recently from Florida, um, and I know you came to Pennsylvania during the polar vortex uh, and uh, ended up saying, you know what, Pennsylvania is a place I want to be and are raising a family here and uh, very quickly have adapted to uh, um, north of the Mason-Dixon line. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And we're glad to have you. Um, So, David, uh, tell us about uh, how you grew up and how you became a lawyer uh, of all things, right? Yeah, um, my first love was actually radio. And um, uh, so I I like being behind the mic. uh, But being a disc jockey or or, uh, talk no i love talk radio i love talk radio and um my wife at the i was just dating my wife at the time and realized that at least in the run-up to being on the radio you were not going to make good enough money to start a family (laughs) so um i also thought that i could really do something with uh with a law degree i could help people Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of lawyers say that, and a lot of lawyers come out of law school not helping people. <laughs> um, but fortunately, I, I stuck to that. And so went through law school, and uh, my wife put me through. She was a photographer who, who paid our bills uh, during that time. And then I, I was setting up a nice practice in Florida. I went to work for a, a Florida Supreme Court justice. And then after that, I uh, went to a boutique law firm and was doing some healthcare litigation. And also running some uh, some international trade associations, um, we would get laws passed across the country for this particular uh, particular industry, and uh, I, and I, I liked my work. Mm-hmm. Um, at, I did feel like I was helping people, but when the opportunity came up here in Pennsylvania to represent people in a market that that was not served, uh, I knew that this was the job for me. And if I could, let me let me describe what what this market is. I mean. So um, the the folks who started the Fairness Center, Matt, you were you were among them in sort of your personal capacity. Um, saw a market of folks who uh, mainly public employees who had issues that were not served by the unions or by the employers. You know, there's a lot of a lot of lawyers out there, mm-hmm. a lot of lawyers in particular for the unions and for the for the employers. But sometimes the employees are stuck in the middle, and sometimes it's over issues that are not not uh, not uh, valuable in terms of money, but valuable in terms of principle. 
yeah, hundreds of dollars, right? Uh, why go hire a lawyer? Well, here's an example, yeah. and I know you wanted to talk about this, but uh, there's a, a case that we filed just recently for a handful of employees up in Erie. And uh, I was just doing an interview with, with uh, the paper in Pittsburgh with this client. Uh, his name is Mark Kiddo. And Mark was explaining that he, they had hired a lawyer first to try to litigate this issue. And they were paying him out of their pockets. Mm. They had collected this money because the union wasn't going to cover it. And after a while, they started to run out of money with no end in sight. And the fact is, and most public employees are, are public servants. They, they do not have, you know, a pot of money sitting there to pay an attorney to do this stuff. And what was, it, what was the issue they were paying the attorney for? Well, they were paying the attorney because they felt like the union um, had not served their interests well. So here they are, no man's land, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when you have a problem with your union, uh, who is supposed to be your representative, uh, it's tough to find representation that is uh, affordable, I guess. That's, that's exactly right. They were litigating over, among other things, pay raises, benefits that the union was, was refusing to give them. And, uh, and, but did they have the money to pay for it now? No. And we so can do did, that for free. And so did these public employees uh, look at saying, hey, let's get rid of this union entirely? Um, or was it just one public employee saying, uh, look, I'm just not well represented, but because of the way laws are structured, uh, you're going to either be a member of that union or no union uh, at all? Yeah, I'm not sure that these folks ever considered, you know, what could we do without a union? Mm -hmm. what, they, what they wanted to do is very simple. They just wanted their union to do its job. Um, so anyway, they, they had to go and hire uh, a lawyer and, and ran out of money. And the fact is we exist because uh, there's a market that's underserved. So, mm -hmm. um, and that market is those who are hurt by public sector union officials. And so uh, these folks uh, uh, have the Fairness Center mm -hmm. there to provide uh, free legal counsel. Uh, and uh, what's the case? What Do you see merits to uh, the argument that uh, uh, this, this public employee, local public employee up in Erie, uh, had against their union? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if I could back up a minute, there's the public sector unions uh, have an obligation as the exclusive representative. That means they represent everybody in a particular workplace to represent them fairly. Okay, it's an it's an inordinate amount of power. It's a monopoly bargaining power. And it's something they asked for, correct? They have uh, lobbied for and gotten into law that exclusive representation. So the fact that they have to represent everybody uh, in, a, in a workplace is something that the unions have long sought, right, and well, yeah, got codified. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated history, but I know mm -hmm. exclusive representation began when there were sort of competing unions in a particular workplace in the private, in the private context. Mm -hmm. And unions were tired of competing against one another and draining their resources. Employer, employers, for their part, were also tired of dealing with multiple unions, would have rather dealt with one. Mm-hmm. So exclusive representation, it's an, it's an old concept, but it, it, it also creates its own problems. The U.S. Supreme Court um, back in 1944 had to recognize that this kind of power is actually sort of, it precludes employees from, from doing some things on their own. So uh, in order to sidestep a potential First Amendment problem with that is, uh, well, unions have a duty of fair representation. They can't mistreat union members because of their race, because of their gender. They can't mistreat them even if they're not a member. If they're in the bargaining unit, the union has to represent them mm -hmm. all fairly. 
they have to do it without prejudice and uh, and they have to do it you know, non-arbitrarily um, so in this particular context what happened was Mark and his co-workers they saw that some folks around them particularly some of the blue-collar workers at Erie Waterworks and management were getting these interesting deals um, uh, they, they called them post-employment subsidies. And what they really did was fill the gap between uh, the time of retirement and the time of being eligible for Medicaid, mm -hmm. Medicare. And um, they wanted that deal. They also, of course, wanted a higher salary. Mm -hmm. And their union is AFSCME. They're represented by a local AFSCME uh, chapter. Yeah, so they told their, their local AFSCME representatives, they said, we want that deal. Next time the contract rolls around, mm -hmm. that's the deal that we want. Can mm -hmm. you please get that? In the past, at least Mark tells me, there, there was a really a free flow of information between the union and the employees. But this time, when they went into negotiations, they started asking, you know, are you going to get that deal? Are you going to get that deal? And the answer was, we can't talk about this. Hmm. Just stonewalling from the union officials. And by the time the, the negotiators finally come back to membership, what membership learns is very disappointing to them. Uh, the union says, you know, here's the deal. And the deal is no post-retirement, post-employment subsidy. Um, you're going to get a small pay raise. And everybody's going to stay on this pension plan. And the workers were all very, you know, disappointed about that. They uh, they asked because they what were about that yeah. What what, what exactly were they wanting to do? And what they got in yeah. return from the union in that meeting was hostility, mm. even threats to that. You know, you never know what the, the what the employer might do. They might revoke pensions altogether. Mm. A lot of coercion going on in that meeting, and um, and then a few days after. The, the employees vote to ratify because that's what they thought they had to do. That that was the only deal on the table, right? Yeah. The, um, they learned that there was actually another option. And that option, remember I told you the option that the union gave them was a lower pay raise, mm -hmm. um, no post-retirement subsidy, and everybody stays on the pension plan. The employer had actually made a different a different option available. That was a higher pay raise. And the employer is the Erie Waterworks, correct? So yeah. uh, the, the public employer. It's a public but, employer. Yeah. It's, a, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a water uh, public water authority. Mm -hmm. uh, higher pay raise. They'd made the post-employment subsidy available. Mm -hmm. The only thing that the employer wanted to do is move new employees off of the pension plan and onto a defined contribution plan, okay. much like a 401k. Mm -hmm. These folks would have voted for that. Okay, mm -hmm. this this would have been a very different story had the union done its job and made that uh, that option available to the employees. But, but unions fight against any sort of movement from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution, even if it's future employees. Listen, uh, is that is that? I'm uh, not making yeah. this up. There's okay. a little bit of a record on this case yeah. because the first thing that Mark and his coworkers did is try to litigate this within the union. Okay, they went to AFSCME International and said. We had a problem with our with our union, mm -hmm. and you need to fix it. Went through a trial, and what the union officials in Erie said was, "Hey, we have an obligation to keep our union strong." Mm. In More other than words, take care of in the employees, they, the they, members. Yeah, yeah they yeah. put the interests of the union mm. above the employees. Mm -hmm. That's a big problem. Yeah, it's especially a problem when the deal was good for the employer. It was good for the employees. And it was good for the general public. 
Mm-hmm. You should have a lockstep movement toward, you know, toward what the employees wanted here. So you have filed suit on behalf of Mark and and his colleagues. Um, and uh, what is uh, what's your claim there? It's called the duty of fair representation. There is a, a cause of action in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a little unique um, in in the private labor context. This is called an unfair labor practice. Mm-hmm. When uh, they drafted the laws here in Pennsylvania, I, I, I can't tell you why, but they left out the duty of fair representation as an unfair labor practice. It is not an unfair labor practice in How Pennsylvania. How convenient. <laughs> one might say what the courts had to do is assume that it existed uh-huh. because it, it it's a it, you have to have it um, so they assumed it existed and there was fight there were fights over the decades about where to litigate this kind of claim but it is solidly uh, decided now that when you want to raise a duty of fair representation claim you file it in the local county court so we filed it in Erie County Court of Common Pleas and um, and it's a single count. It's the duty of fair representation. The union should have done its job. And where does that uh, case stand today? We filed this case in early December. Okay. And so uh, obviously the courts take some time, but we'll see how this plays out. I know that the media has certainly covered it uh, extensively uh, up in Erie. And, um, well, I guess we're going to have to wait and see on uh, how you fare there. Uh, you, I know you've got a lot of other cases uh, dealing with both other public employees um, at local levels uh, and school teachers, as well as some private sector uh, court cases. I know one of the early ones uh, was a result of an executive order uh, by Governor Tom Wolf, one of the first actions he took as governor, uh, which was to uh, effectively unionize uh, 20,000 home care workers. Uh, And that's one of those cases that has kind of been seen throughout the whole uh, uh, case, I guess we've, we've had finality uh, to that since that happened in 2015. Talk about Smith v. Wolf and uh, what uh, happened in this case where Tom Wolf tried to take executive action and circumvent statutory uh, uh, limitations on his powers. Well, well there, there is a, uh, a f- sort of a familiar play in the playbook uh, for public sector unions. Um, to unionize new workers. And uh, in Pennsylvania, there was a class of workers, I am call them home care workers. Um, they're folks who take care of, um, of elderly or disabled folks in their homes. Um, they're typically relatives of those folks. And ultimately, the money to pay for that care comes from the state or federal government. Mm-hmm. They are because of the connection to state or federal government, some people would like to say that these are public employees. Mm. But in reality, the laws, federal and state, are clear. The employer for that person is the person for whom they care. So the person who's actually getting the, the Medicare or Medicaid uh, um, payments, to the, they are the employer of that private sector person. These types of folks are folks, they're elderly or disabled, but they are able to... to, to direct their own care okay okay um they can also hire fire they they direct they uh they determine the pay for the home care workers who come in they Mm -hmm. are by by any account they are the employer Mm -hmm. of the home care worker Um, well despite the fact that they are private employees uh, governors in other states have taken a measure to uh unionize them 
first by executive order, and then once it's challenged, the legislature usually swoops in and and sort of endorses that mm. by passing a law. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened with Rod Blagojevich in Illinois. It happened with Governor Malloy in uh, Connecticut. It happened down in Maryland. Um, Governor Wolf decided to play to to call that same play. Mm-hmm. Which, ironically, his uh, uh, chief of staff or somebody in, uh, very close to him, special advisor, uh, came from one of those unions that uh, he, that Tom Wolf, would ultimately give names, addresses, contact information to. Uh, one of his major campaign contributors um, was going to be the beneficiary of uh, access to 20,000 people's uh, names and and possibly uh, extracting union dues from their paychecks. Well, it, yeah, no secret, you know, Governor Wolf did not write this himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he called that same play uh, back in 2015, um, shortly after taking office. And, um, you know, I, I became friends with a guy named Dave Smith, who's a home care, he's, uh, he's a disabled uh, man in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. He's uh, quadriplegic. He's able to to um, direct his wheelchair with his right finger, his right index mm-hmm. finger. He reads. Incredibly bright guy. Well, when he saw this happen, he knew, he saw what what was going to uh, how this was going to impact his life. Mm-hmm. He was cared for. He's cared for now by a guy named Don Lambrecht. He's uh, been with him for twenty six years. And so Don's taking care of Dave uh, in his daily activities. He hired him. Mm-hmm. He tells him what he gets paid. He tells him how to take care of him. And he could fire him. That power is really important because Dave has had to exercise it before. Mm. There was a home care worker that he had that, um, that tried to take advantage of him financially. And you can imagine a, a quadriplegic guy who's unable to take care of himself. Um, what else can you yeah. do in that situation? It has to be a level of trust huge yeah i mean when i'm over there talking to them don is don has to hold up a drink to his lips i mean he has to he has to do just about everything for him mm-hmm. um don, dave saw that this executive order would would hurt his ability to do all that stuff and even though he loves don a lot of uh, uh elderly disabled people in these home care programs employ multiple home care workers mm-hmm. don ever wants to take a vacation for instance got to have somebody else come in and take care of him and, and and Dave saw this as where the governor was effectively putting a third party, a union, in between the relationship between uh, um, Dave and Don. Well, that's right, and the executive order said that. I mm-hmm. mean, the executive order said that the union was going to come in and negotiate over terms and conditions of employment for home care workers. Mm-hmm. Um, going to subject them to orientation programs, um, a number of other things. Mm-hmm. That no doubt what this was going to do. Um, so we filed on his behalf, a uh, his and Don's behalf, a uh, petition for review in the Commonwealth Court shortly after this thing was was issued, and uh, almost immediately got a preliminary injunction. I mean, we learned in, in that preliminary injunction hearing who the union was. We didn't mm-hmm. even know hmm. that the union had been the the uh, union had been going full bore, had already gotten in contact with a number of home care workers, had already filed a petition to to be. The, the union in this context. And uh, it was an amalgamation of the SCIU and AFSCME, two of the biggest public sector unions. Mm-hmm. They called it the Pennsylvania Home Care Workers Association. Um, we got that injunction, uh, and it 
prevented the union and the governor from coming to a deal. And in the grounds for the injunction, what, it wasn't about the First Amendment. This is not a high, high-minded high concept. The, the concept was maybe the legislature could have done something like this, mm-hmm. but that's not what happened. The governor issued an executive order that read exactly like all these laws that were passed in different states. He was exercising legislative authority and unionizing home care workers by executive fiat. And state I still law think that's would, what yeah, happened. Uh-huh. And state law uh, would not permit that type of action. If anything, right? state yeah. law and national law yeah, prohibited, prohibited this. Yes, yes. Um, there's an exclusion for uh, domestic care workers that, you know, Congress and the state legislature apparently recognize, like, it's not going to be helpful to have a union um, coming between people in their own homes. So let's let's kind of fast forward here because you win uh, first an injunction that stops this process from happening, um, but this thing uh, goes all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, where uh, folks that were elected by the same people who were unionizing them uh, ended up securing a victory um, uh, with the uh, large Democratic control of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Uh, where does that stand today? Where, where does that leave uh, Dave and Don and other home care workers in Pennsylvania? Well, I, I don't want to make this about parties. Um, you know, yeah. I, I used to work uh, as a clerk on a on a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court. And listen, most of the time, these guys are, are just trying to do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, What they were presented with was a tough case where a governor was claiming power to do something that, uh, you know, I think I still I still think Don and Dave were right. He didn't have the power to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Supreme Court said, uh, yes, he does. The Supreme Court, in, in a way, punted on the question, mm-hmm. um, although it was our argument, and I think it's clear from the text of the executive order that the governor was unionizing home care workers. What the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said is, well, if you if you if you read the executive order as the governor is saying we should read it, it really doesn't do much at all. Instead, <laughs> it creates a process by which the governor can collect information from people. And if he really wanted to enforce some of the harsh language in here, he couldn't do it legally. Mm. Therefore, it's it's unenforceable. It really doesn't mean much. There's a, there's a very in, interesting history of executive So because he didn't call it unionization, therefore we're not going to view it as unionization. He didn't call it unionization. He also didn't call it exclusive representation. A little cute, uh, but apparently enough to uh, get by here. Um, so th- you've got a number of other cases, David, that I want to talk about as well. Um, and I want to finish on your firefighters one that's uh, actually occurring outside of Pennsylvania. Uh, but uh, there is a practice that's going on in school districts uh, across Pennsylvania uh, whereby teachers um, that should be in the classroom are actually uh, on the payroll of the union doing full-time union work, uh, ghost teachers as, as you've called them. Um, and a lot of taxpayers are fully unaware that, uh, look, they're paying for, uh, in some cases, the retirement, uh, the salaries. Uh, accrual of seniority, um, and uh, these things aren't even being covered uh, by the unions. Uh, I know in Allentown is just this your own lawsuit that has caused uh, change in some of the practices going forward, but you still have an active case uh, up there. Um, tell me about uh, uh, Ramos 
versus the Allentown Education Association. Yeah, that's one of our, the three cases that we've filed for clients on this issue. Um, we've this case is is we are actually representing two taxpayers in the Allentown area, and then one teacher mm-hmm. who is vested in the pension plan. And there are sort of two problems with what was going on in Allentown. One is um, they uh, the union had bargained to have one one teacher leave the classroom and come work for the union full time and have the taxpayers pay for it entirely to to do entirely. union work yeah. entirely okay salary benefits all of that and the second issue is that the that this person would also continue to accrue pension credit while doing so okay so the first issue in some ways um, you know I, I have to say things have gone very well uh, for our clients across the state unions have realized that they can't make taxpayers pay for Mm -hmm. their employees (laughs) so almost immediately after we filed that lawsuit um the union decided to uh, start reimbursing for the costs of the uh, of the ghost teacher well and how long had they been getting this gravy train of taxpayer funded work for the union no telling decades okay decades but um they did that in allentown they also did that in a case we filed down in redding um, by uh, this is anecdotal, but it's also happened in Lancaster and Erie and other places. So these were these were former these were teachers in the classroom. Uh, they leave the classroom and just do union work, but they 100% are one hundred percent of the time. Okay, and yeah. but they are accruing pension benefits as if they were still in the classroom. Is that correct? Yeah. Now that's the second issue. So working for a private sector organization, but on a public sector pension plan. That people in the private sector simply can't get oh, a yeah. guaranteed income for life. Yep. Uh, correct? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so I can see why you have taxpayers outraged about this. Outraged is right. <laughs> and they did everything they could before they came to court. Mm. I mean, one of these guys happened to be on the school board uh, prior to filing this case, and he raised it multiple times, both in negotiations and just in front of the school board. He even had a lawyer write a, a letter for the school board to say that it was illegal. I mean, uh, but ultimately, the problem needed to be resolved in court, mm-hmm. and, and we did that. The, the, uh, the union immediately started reimbursing for these, almost immediately started reimbursing for these costs. And, uh, and the other thing that happened is that the pension system saw that there was a problem here. Mm-hmm. So they revoked credit from these ghost teachers, and they said, sorry, you know, you should have told us what was going on here. Uh, you know, the pension plan is called Peacers. Uh, Peacers relies on local authorities to tell them, you know, if, if people are actually doing school service. Interesting. So the public school employees retirement system uh, could be gamed um, by lots of people because no one's checking to make sure that uh, the participants are actually eligible for participation. Well, here's I mean, that's right. Yeah. Here's what happened next, though. The, so the uh, Peacers revoked that credit. But the, the ghost teachers represented by the teachers union filed an appeal within mm. piecers to get that credit back mm-hmm. and that's that's still ongoing okay um our clients intervened into that it's an administrative action but what often happens at piecers or any state public pension system is that somebody makes a takes an appeal like that and then ultimately it gets up to the board and the board says well you know i think they they in good faith they they claim this credit mm-hmm. and they might actually 
give the credit at the end of the day to the teachers or the public employees. What, what was the union paying into the pension system? Was no. it okay? Was the school district paying into the pension system school, for those ghost teachers? School district was matching. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so the taxpayers are paying for the union um, employees' uh, pension benefit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, what'll often happen is that the, un- the at the end of the day, the, the the pension system will give away the credits. After all, it's a pretty small amount compared to the whole big pot of sure, money that they sure. need. Um, so can I say, ah, uh, So our clients intervened so that basically that couldn't happen mm-hmm. because it, when that happens, there's nobody around to appeal, right? The, the pension system just gave it away. Right. And the union, um, the union's not going to appeal. They just got what they wanted. So taxpayers and, and the folks we represent, they, they saw a need to intervene here. So we're, we've got a hearing in in uh, January or February on that issue. And yeah, and so is that with the next step? Uh, how far yep. away are we from resolution on this? And do we, you think even just having done these lawsuits, uh, you've ended this practice in many school districts that they've kind of, that shining light into dark holes. Uh, it's uh, exposed uh, some practices that taxpayers uh, can be pretty irate about. Well, our, our clients have been very pleased with what's happened. Yeah. So uh, culturally, there's been a real mm. shift away from this. Uh, and really, all, all our clients had to do is shine a light on it. You're, you're, you're totally right. Now, uh, moving to, I think, one of uh, your uh, most interesting cases uh, is you are representing a local union president uh, who is suing uh, the state union. Uh, and this is actually happening outside of Pennsylvania, that uh, your services were, were sought um, by a local firefighters union that was not happy with uh, the state union representation and actually uh, told them uh, we're not going to be part of the the state affiliate. Uh, But the state affiliate uh, said, oh, yes, you are. You're going to continue paying us. Uh, Rather interesting uh, kind of internal fighting, if you will, amongst unions. And you are on the side of the union uh, and the local members. Have I characterized that correctly? Close. The client is not the president of the union. It's the union itself. Uh-huh. So we represent, uh, it's Local 825. It's a union, firefighters union up in New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah, but but you're entirely right. These guys, all they want to do is run a good union. And unfortunately, the presence of the statewide union really keeps them from doing that. Not only is it very costly for a local to be involved with a statewide union, but the statewide union was also pushing politics that the local did not agree with. Mm. In fact, at least at one point, um, the president of the local found himself testifying on a bill in in Hartford and taking a position adverse to the, to the statewide state. union. <laughs> All right, um, the the he had already sought the ability to sort of amend the bill with his with his statewide union, but they weren't having it. So, you know, what do you do if you're a local that wants to do business and be a good union? When you've got a statewide who doesn't seem to care about it, you know, um, they voted to disaffiliate and they did it uh, by taking a vote of the e-board, the executive board for the union. That's the sort of the, the board, mm-hmm. essentially. The uh, And it was unanimous. And, you know, the president didn't even vote on that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't vote as a, as, as a general matter. We're talking about f- people who are Democrats, Republicans, people who liked the statewide union at one point, people who didn't. Uh, it was unanimous. Mm. And they, they basically said, we do not see the state union representing our interests as a local union. They wanted to remain as unionized 
firefighters, correct? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, no problem with the union. They, what they wanted to do is be free to join and free to leave. Mm-hmm. So they informed the statewide of what they had done, and the statewide came down with force. Um, not only did they uh, did they try to coerce the leadership into rejoining the statewide union, but they ended up farming it out to a collection agency who was started harassing <laughs> the union leaders and their elderly parents. He calls at all time of day and night. Wow. What other choice did they have at the end of the day but to sue over this issue? So why does this local union in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, come find the Fairness Center uh, to get representation? Was there no, I mean, is this where there is a lack of uh, folks uh, helping public employees like this? Is that why uh, they've had to go outside the state to get help? It's the same problem I mentioned at the outset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how, how in the world can you litigate a claim over you – know, dues are expensive – but you'd burn through them within a few yeah. hours. Whatever you save uh, is long gone before you probably even get in the courtroom. That's right. Yeah. So um, our mission is to protect those who've been hurt by public sector union officials. Mm-hmm. This union happened to fit that description precisely. So mm-hmm. um, we started representing them and, and filed an action in uh, in state court to stop this. Well, and this is, I think, an, a good uh, time for us to talk about uh, um you know, are you an anti-union outfit? Because that's what, uh, you know, folks are claiming, you know, particularly in Pennsylvania when it comes to the PSEA or AFSME or SEIU, any of these folks that uh, um, find uh, you in the courtroom and, of course, on the other side. They say you're just an anti-union organization. Um, this really breaks up the narrative here where you're actually representing a local union. Well, that that characterization is is unfair, and I think it hurts our clients when mm-hmm. unions make that, because the reality is most of our clients have no problem with unions as a general matter. Mm-hmm. What they want is to be treated fairly by their union. Um, you know, we filed, for instance, some cases recently on membership. We've got we represent members of unions who want to leave their union, but weren't able to do it. Listen, these people joined freely. They should be able to leave freely mm-hmm. as well. And we, we'd fight for the right for folks to, to be able to join unions if they were if they were kept from doing that. Um, it just so happens that those people can find representation somewhere yeah. for that issue. Yeah. Uh, but unions are more than happy to have people join them. Uh, yeah. It's when they want to leave, like what we're seeing in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, that they will uh, fight to prevent anybody from leaving and taking their cash with them. Yeah, not not all unions do this. Now, I, yeah. you know, I've seen some uh, some heroes in in unions who will stand up for employees who want to leave or want to you know determine their own their own futures. You know, I it it, ha- it happens. I the, what you hear about, of course, are are, are lawsuits uh, where that doesn't go well for for our clients. So, where things stand in New Haven, Connecticut, what's happening uh, with uh, the the union squabble there? Not only did the union hire a collections agency, they also filed formal charges within another union body, an international association, against the officials at Local 825. <laughs> they want to get them removed from office. <laughs> so uh, we had to stop that, and that, that, was, um, that, was, that was out of bounds. So we filed a preliminary injunction motion to stop the statewide union 
from trying to remove <laughs> the officials for the local. That'd be an easy way to solve the uh, lawsuit, I suppose. Right. Well, and, and one of the one of the things that you have to show in a preliminary injunction hearing is that your client has a likelihood of success on the merits. The court's not going to issue an injunction for something that you know a case that that's never going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we basically had to put on our case um, in a in sort of a shorter format, and what we put on was evidence that that the locals should have been allowed to leave, depending on, you know, whatever rules you, you put in place, that uh, the default position is that a, a local should be able to break off from its statewide union whenever it wants. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing that can keep them in is that they sign something that, that restricts that ability. And then second, we had to prove, because it's another element of the case, that, that, that the statewide has been abusing um, its power and misappropriating resources for a very long time. So uh, we put on evidence of both those things and just got a ruling earlier um, in December that the uh, that we're right. Local 825 properly disaffiliated from the statewide union and it put on credible evidence of some really interesting uses of their money. Um, had not reimbursed personal travel expenses. I mean, the union president in um, the statewide union had been going on trips to Hawaii and St. Croix and Florida with his, with his girl, with his fiance and her daughter, and apparently never got, uh, never reimbursed that expense. Um, Meaning he used uh, union funds and never paid it back. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Had uh, they they were funneling money into a pack uh, and had been mis reporting the amounts of money in the in the pack for and this a long wouldn't time. have been exposed had you not uh, no. been involved no, in this business case as usual. yeah business as usual for these folks well uh, David Osborne uh, president and general counsel of the Fairness Center um, I, I know you've got a number of uh, cases uh, that are moving forward what do you see as uh, the next uh, battles um, in this kind of post Janus? world um, that with the U.S. Supreme Court handing down uh, a reversal of uh, a uh, multi-decade ruling back in the 1970s that allowed unions to collect money from uh, non-union members uh, in the public sector. Uh, Where are we going uh, here in Pennsylvania? What are the, the challenges for public employees wanting to exercise their Janus rights? Two basic categories. So, yeah, uh, the Supreme Court said in, in, in Janus that union, uh, that non-members no longer have to pay fees. One thing that we've been doing for our clients in Pennsylvania is to is to get that ruling actually applied in Pennsylvania. It's going to sound weird. Anytime yeah. the U.S. Supreme Court decides <laughs> an issue, it doesn't necessarily have automatic effect across the country. What they're doing is deciding a particular case, and that case, Janus, happened to arise out of Illinois and involved Illinois law. Yeah, so now, laws in Pennsylvania that still allow for this practice are on the books. They weren't, the books. like, removed because of the Supreme Court ruling. What a court is really supposed to do in, in a case like this is to take the, the Illinois statute and put it up next to the Pennsylvania statute and give a ruling. Mm-hmm. It looks like... Janus would apply here in Pennsylvania equally to Pennsylvania law and to declare that law unconstitutional. And perhaps, depending on the situation, to enjoin a union from, uh, from, from trying to enforce that law in the future. Um, 
what happened here in Pennsylvania is that unions saw the writing on the wall and started to retreat. Mm-hmm. So uh, they didn't make a full retreat, and that's one of the issues that we're litigating over. The PSEA in particular has uh, left room to go back to its former practice in one way or another. You know, I've heard some some anecdotal reports out of different states that unions are threatening to impose what they're calling a service fee. Hmm. A service fee is is exactly what they were imposing before. <laughs> yeah. So they're just going to call it instead a of a fair share it. fee. Uh, we'll, call, we'll call it a service fee. Okay. Yeah. All right. So being a little cute. And it is. I think it would be. It would be. I would be a bad lawyer if I didn't represent our clients to the fullest extent possible, and actually make sure that this kind of thing never came back to get them. What I mean. What we've been litigating over fair share fees for some time before mm-hmm. Janice. The cases were still in the queue when Janice was decided. What if we just let the case go and let the unions return back to their old practice? Well, goodness, we'd be back in court again for these same clients, but we'd be starting from scratch. What the court really should do is declare the law unconstitutional and enjoin the union from going back to charging fair share fees, whatever name you put on it. And this will require litigation, correct? The, the, we're still the, in yeah. court over mm-hmm. this issue, yeah. Yeah, the cases didn't go away. Um, uh, we've got something like four cases where, where that will be decided. And and really the second category is, well, all right, so Janice decided um, that non-members don't have to pay a fee. What about members? How does Janice apply to members, mm-hmm. if at all? And one obvious thing we've uh, we've had to bring cases over this is that uh, non that members are not being allowed to leave. So uh, if they want, so like again, you can join at any time. It's kind of the Hotel California, but you can't ever leave. Uh, unfortunately, so, yeah. in many unions, that's that's what happens. Mm. We represent uh, William Neely in a case against AFSCME. Um, what happened with William Neely is is apparently endemic within AFSME. Um, he asked shortly after Janice was decided, hey, I'd, I'd like to leave the union now. And he was a full union member. He's a full yeah, union yeah. member, but, but felt like the union really wasn't representing mm-hmm. him well. And so he said, you know, I'd like to become a non-member and no longer pay the union for these services that I don't deem valuable. And um, the union said, I'm sorry, there's this statute in Pennsylvania called maintenance of membership. You can go to the statute books and look at it. What it says is you can't leave the union until the last 15 days of a contract. Sometimes that's years away. Mm-hmm. A lot of contracts will last for three, four, or five years. And, uh, and, and he said, well, I want to leave now. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, well, if you want to do that, what I think you'll have to do is go talk to the union president. Okay, I'm fine. I'll do that. <laughs> Here's the number. He calls, gets no response. Calls again, no response. At least 10 phone calls to this guy. Mm. He starts to call other people within the union. Hey, I'm not getting a response. You know, can wh- what should I do? He, he makes phone calls even down to D.C., to neighboring councils, because the way AFSCME is set up, there are different different governing bodies. He tries to call other governing bodies to see how, how in the world do I get out. Never gets any response at all. Just absolute stonewalling. And so eventually we say, you know, I don't, I don't know that this is fruitful. Um, it's time to file a lawsuit over this. And the point of his lawsuit is to declare maintenance of membership unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the reality is your, your First Amendment rights should not be limited to a 15-day period every three or four years. Yeah, because anybody who uh, joins the workforce at any point in the contract uh, can join the union, correct? So, oh, you, yeah. again, you can come in at any point. They're just saying, we don't want to allow you to leave. Uh, sort of like having a gym membership for four years and saying, I'm done uh, that treadmill stuff. Uh, but then the gym saying, no, you're going to pay for four years. Yeah. Um, they want to have that kind of uh, contract provision. So, well, best wishes in, in all of these uh, fights, David. Uh, I know you are standing up for the little guy, if you will, uh, teachers, public employees that uh, can't get uh, the kind of representation that you provide. So uh, thank you for doing that for those folks. And uh, we're glad to have you in Pennsylvania out of those warmer climes of of Florida. Uh, And you're doing great work and continue it there at uh, the Fairness Center. Thanks. I, I love my clients. I love my work. Thank you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.